Morning. Welcome to St. James. Time change stuff. And we're gonna, uh, all of us are going to trickle in here slowly but surely over the next 15 minutes. Uh, some might even show up for Bible study thinking that it's uh, time for church. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are here and glad that we're all um, back together in one service again. And a um, couple things about the service. So uh, we have more time now since there's only one service. And so we're going to go back to using... Uh, kind of the longer liturgy that we were using before, the shorter liturgy that we were using uh, the past uh, year or so. Uh, once we get into it, I think for the, those of you who were with us two years ago, it'll be a little bit familiar to you. Uh, but just a heads up, keep your eye on the bulletin, uh, keep your eye on the scorecard because it will be a little bit different. And uh, just follow along. Some of the uh, liturgical parts are, uh, if you remember, are sung to familiar tunes. So that shouldn't be too hard. But a couple other things will be like they were two years ago, sort of, sort of out of order, perhaps. So just keep an eye on that. I've got two big announcements. And, oh, well, they're not big. That's, that was, uh, sounded like I was going to say something important. Just two announcements, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, Carmen and Stacy. Uh, so first of all, um, midweek worship services, uh, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock p.m., we, we are talking about, um, we are thinking about together uh, the seven deadly sins, and we talked about pride last Wednesday, and I'm going to talk about uh, greed uh, this Wednesday, and I know that everybody's like, oh, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm not greedy, that's other people. Actually, uh, Jesus insists that we're all greedy, and it's a, a very, very definitely a sin that we all have to be aware of. So uh, please come on Wednesday night. And also there's a nice time afterwards where we all get together and um, hang out downstairs and eat pastries and uh, talk to each other. New members class next Sunday, March 20th, we're starting a new, a new, new members class that's, I, I actually, that's, I was telling somebody recently, that's my favorite thing to do here, by far. That's my favorite uh, thing that I do at church, is that new members class. It's just a ton of fun. Uh, we talk about basically basic Christianity stuff, including what is it that makes Lutherans different? Uh, you know, what's distinctive about the way that, uh, the, 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 about what Lutherans believe? Uh, it's a great way to meet new people. Uh, if you've gone through it before, or, uh, so it's for, who is it for? It's for, if you're thinking about joining the church, of course. Uh, if you're just interested in the basics of Christianity. If you've gone through it before, but you just think it's fun, we've had uh, several times we've had people come back and uh, hang out again uh, after going through it. That'll be next Sunday evening at 6.30. So if you want to do the new members class, I, it, totally fine with me if you just show up. That's totally fine. But if you let me know in advance, I can print out in advance the study guide for you which I might have to do at the beginning, which would make us late and throw us all off horribly. That's not true. But if you let me know in advance, uh, it helps me out to know who's going to be here and how many donuts to buy and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Carmen's going to talk to us, and then uh, Stacy's going to talk to us. Good morning, everyone. Our youth group is going to um, Houston, Texas this summer for the National Youth Gathering, and we're raising money so that we can go. Um, in the narthex, there's a bulletin board and there's envelopes with um, prices that you can donate. Um, we appreciate everyone who's already donated and we're super excited. Okay. I have been wanting to do a Passover dinner with our teenagers so they can experience what that is like authentically and just experience this together. But I really don't even know where to begin with a thing like this. So I have been able to make contact with Pastor Kevin over in St. Louis at Shivey Shalom Church, 
And they have been talking with me about having one here with all of us, all of us. And they have graciously decided to help us do this and help us put it on. They're going to do our grocery shopping. They're going to do the whole Seder meal, everything, the, all of it. It's like four hours long. But we're going to do this on Palm Sunday in April. It'll be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But we won't be eating until like 5. It's a, it's a four-hour event. <laughs> so come prepared for that. But it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be about $5 for an adult ticket so that we can cover the element plate, like just the, the things that you need for the actual ceremonial part of the Passover dinner. And then we're going to do a potluck-style meal for all of the rest of us at dinner time. Church will provide the meats. We're going to do like brisket and chicken. This is their recipes. They have the recipe list. They're going to help us make some authentic dishes that we can try. And then we'll have classic things our church is used to as we bring potluck-style meals. So there will be more details in the bulletin next week as I've been working all of this out. It'll be free for kids all the way up through teenagers because I want you guys to come. I want you to experience this and see what this is like as we do this together. Um, so just save the date. Keep this in mind. It'll be on Palm Sunday, and we'll start taking the reservations next week. Space is limited, so be thinking about that, and if you're available on Palm Sunday in April. Thank you. Please stand for the first hymn.
in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, Confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's read Psalm 4 together. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from the prophet Jeremiah, and what he's talking about here is going to be, we're going to uh, come back to this. Jesus is talking about many of the same things in the sermon text this morning from Luke. But basically, Jeremiah has prophesied against Israel and prophesied against the temple. And that leaves him in the vulnerable position of anybody who prophesies warnings against their own country. Everybody, all of us have this tendency, whether we're ancient Jews or ancient Romans or ancient Persians or contemporary Americans, all of us who believe in God have a tendency to conflate our belief in God with our country. It's, it's, it's almost inevitable. Whenever people prophesy against our country, therefore, the establishment, even the religious establishment, tends to get very, very upset. And this is what happens to Jeremiah too. Jeremiah 26, when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priest and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house, the temple, shall be like Shiloh, destroyed, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house. So Jerusalem, the ancient city of David, sat on top of a small hill. Just above that, on a hill a little bit taller than that, was the king's house, the house that David built. And then above that was the temple complex. And so they come up from the seat of government up to the temple complex, and uh, they're going to sit in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Verse 11, And the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against this city, as you've heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, a spoiler alert, Jeremiah uh, was right. Uh, within Jeremiah's lifetime, Babylon did come and destroy the city and the people all gathered around the temple and said, the temple, the temple, we're gonna be safe because God lives in the temple. Uh, but Jeremiah and the rest of the true prophets were right. God had abandoned his temple because of their disbelief and um, they went into exile into Babylon. Epistle reading, Philippians 3, uh, going into uh, chapter four, and I'm gonna stop and make a couple of comments in here too. Brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. So consuming in pleasure is their, is their God. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, a couple quick comments. 
our citizenship is in heaven, there's a certain way that American Christians have typically understood that the past 150 years, which is that really our home is in heaven. You know, this world's not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere in heaven beyond the blue. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying our citizenship is in heaven, but that's not where we're going. Instead, our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting from heaven Jesus to come back here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes us a colony. Heaven, God, has planted us here on this earth to be a colony, which he is going to come and claim as his own someday. Jesus is going to come back here. Also, to go along with this, we're not going to heaven when we die. Is Actually, our destiny is to be raised from the dead. Verse 21, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Verse one of chapter four, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
rise for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This is, a, uh, this is a weird little text. Um, it's, it's really kind of hard just on, on the surface to, to, to know what to make of it. You know, Jesus is, uh, people come up and tell him that Herod's trying to kill him, and he says that about, well, uh, you know, two days I've got to work, and then the third day I'm going to be finished. And then he starts talking to Jerusalem and says, you know, you, you killed the prophets, and I, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers uh, her chicks, and you wouldn't do it. Your house is desolate. Your house is left empty. 
and you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's kind of a weird little text, uh, but it's, I, I'm really glad we're talking about it. It's got some really good juicy stuff in there. I mean, just kind of to locate it in the story, of course, we're in Lent now, and so our, so our gospel readings are going to be focused on Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way for this last climactic event when he believes, and we of course believe as well, that he's about to turn the course of history, that he's about to, um, he's about to act in the name of God, that final great act that all Israel's been waiting for for a thousand years now, the act where God makes himself king again, vindicates his own people and destroys his enemies. Nobody except for Jesus right now is quite sure what that's going to look like. They all of his friends, the people who are following him, they all have sort of divergent ideas of what's going to happen. But they're all convinced that this great climactic event is going to happen. And Jesus on his way there, several times, uh, in Mark, for instance, we, we, we read Mark this past summer, three times he predicts his own death. He does the same thing in Luke. And each time he predicts his death, he, he does it with sort of bringing in certain themes, certain things that he wants us to know. And in this case, this is certainly a death prediction, as, as I'll, I'll point out to you later. But in this case, there's three things, there's sort of three themes in this little short gospel reading here. And they're all about Jesus, what Jesus' goals are. And the first is destiny, and the second is self-sacrifice, and the third is the return of God. These are the three key themes in this text. The first one, of course, uh, destiny. Jesus, Jesus believes this is his destiny, it's what he's been called to do, it's what uh, his, his father's goal is. And um, he, he announces this to these Pharisees who've come to him and say in verse 31, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Not quite sure why they're telling him that Herod wants to kill him. Um, are, they, are they trying to be helpful? It's quite possible that uh, for, for Luke, the Pharisees aren't always bad guys. They definitely are opposed to Jesus frequently. But in the, in, in, in the book of Acts, for instance, we see um, several Pharisees who have converted in believe in Jesus and still consider themselves to be, to some extent, Pharisees. It's possible that these Pharisees are just trying to help Jesus out. Maybe they're lying to Jesus. Hey, Herod's trying to kill you just to get him kind of out of their territory. It's possible that Herod has sent them and he's lying. That he's, well, it's possible, of course, that he's trying to kill him. But the weird thing about that is in, in Luke, Herod Antipas, this is one of the sons of Herod the Great, is never very interested in killing Jesus. He's never, that's never really one of his goals, is to off Jesus. In fact, he, Jesus is going to meet Herod Antipas for the first time at his trial at the end of Luke, and Herod Antipas is not really concerned with the trial at all or condemning Jesus. He's just like, hey, can you do a miracle? I want to see something cool, which Jesus doesn't do, so he sends him on to Pilate because he's not really entertaining enough. Maybe Herod is lying. Maybe he's told the Pharisees, go tell him that I want to kill him, to get him out of his territory as well. That's probably the, who knows, who knows, but that's probably the one I think it is. Jesus responds to, uh, to Herod by saying, telling the Pharisees, go back and tell that fox that I'm busy. I'm gonna be uh, casting out demons and healing people and preaching for uh, two days. And on the third day, he says in verse 32, uh, the ESV, what it says in your bulletins, I finished my course. It's actually just literally, I finish my course is literally just one word in Greek, which basically means I've finished, I've completed, I've perfected. It's actually the exact same verb that in the Gospel of John, Jesus from the cross says when he says it is finished. It's the exact same verb. He's basically saying like, I've got a job to do and it's not going to be done until it's done 
and that fox can't stop me. It's kind of using, you know, uh, well, we'll come back to barnyard imagery in a minute. So first of all, fox today has sort of a connotation of guile and deceit and, uh, you know, quick-witted trickery. And in the ancient world, it's the same way, the the exact same image. I don't know why foxes are, are, but I don't know anything about foxes, so of course I wouldn't know anything. And I shouldn't speculate like about what foxes are like in the middle of my sermon. It just except to say that Jesus is saying, you know, he's he's you're trying to pull a fast one. It's not going to work. You can't do me in. Using barnyard imagery too, which we'll come back to, like the fox is going to try to raid the barnyard, but this is I'm too big, like I'm too big for you. Like I'm not going to be stopped by the likes of you. I'm too powerful. The third day I finished my course, he says, and that's of course you should if you, if you've read the Gospels at all up to now, that that number three should be ringing in your ears. Jesus predicts several times that he's going to die and on the third day rise from the dead. And that's what will be the finish. That will be the completion of his work, is this third day. Prophets can't perish away from Jerusalem. Like Jeremiah, like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is a place where they are called to go. It's a place of their final destiny, but their destiny is not a pleasant one. And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, and you can't stop me. It's my destiny. I was reading uh, Robert Stein, who is a, a, a Baptist theologian, and I uh, was reading him on this text this week, and he, he had this line in his commentary on Luke. And I thought it was so good, I would just like pull it out straight out of the commentary and read it to you. He says this, The first theme of this story is God's sovereign rule. Herod's desire to kill him did not worry Jesus for no two-bit politician can frustrate the divine plan. I just thought that was, I, I, I couldn't really improve upon that line. Jesus isn't worried about Herod killing him because no two-bit politician can frustrate the divine plan. So here's what I want to say to all of us. If, if, you, if you take yourself out of your t- context right now and plop yourself down to any moment in church history or the history of God's people, go back to Egypt and Pharaoh, at any moment there are going to be political forces arraigned against you, and cultural forces that are determined to silence the voice of Jesus. It's a part of church history. It's going to happen. But you need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus has this destiny, and he's completely, sovereignly in control of it, and nothing can thwart it. No two-bit politician can undo the divine plan. And to take comfort in that, that nothing can stop it, that all the empires of the world are powerless against the rule and reign of Jesus. I was listening to an historian this week talk about empires and the history of empires in the world. And he brought up several times, so the question of his discussion, his lecture was, are empires good or bad? And he basically said, well, it depends on how you look at it, of course, because he's a historian. But um, he talked about, in the middle of this lecture, he talked about anti-imperial voices throughout history. And he talked about several pagan ones, you know, voices in the Roman world, the, the, the cynic philosophers, perhaps. And, but but he, he made this point. He said that the, that the clearest, greatest, most powerful anti-imperialist propaganda in the history of human history is the book of Revelation, he said. The book of Revelation is designed to undermine powerfully the claims of Rome to be savior, the claims of Caesar to be lord, the claims of Roman rule to be pox, to be peace, and attacks it at every point and undermines it. And I just thought that's a great message for us. It's a great message for us. No two-bit politicians can thwart the divine plan. Herod, he's a fox. He's just not big enough to kill this animal, though. 
He's not big. And, and no politician is. Jesus has a destiny. Jesus is going to die. He doesn't tell Herod that. But when he dies, it will be his destiny. Not Herod's lust for power that offs him. Destiny is the first thing. The second thing is self-sacrifice in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And here's this great line, this great image. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. This is maybe, this is one of the most colorful, vivid predictions of Jesus' death that he gives. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Uh, but you wouldn't, first of all, a little bit of background. A lot of you know this because it's kind of the, we went through Mark and it's the, it, it is the background of Mark. The background of all the Gospels is this, the constant tension between Judah's desire to revolt against their Roman overlords and different disagreements among the Jews about how that revolt should happen and how it should look and who should be in charge of it and to what extent should they prosecute this revolt and what the sign from God would be when they could begin it or if they should do it at all or just let the Romans, you know, let the Romans be in charge and let us keep our temple, this sort of thing. That, coupled with the Roman soldiers, which are constantly marching through Judea as a sign to the Jews that if you go through with this, if you revolt, we will wipe you out. This is constant over the space of 100 years, from about 50 years, uh, about 40, 30 years before Jesus is born till 70 years after his birth. It is the constant question. And countless messiahs rise up and say, this is it. Follow me, we're going to beat Rome. And countless times, Roman, Rome, Roman soldiers squash them. It's the constant, it's like the echoing refrain of life in Israel. That's the background of this. When is God going to act? How is he going to get rid of the Romans? And what are the Romans going to do to respond from the Roman side? And in that context, Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not? Well, what does this have to do with Roman, with uh, the Roman Empire, you might ask? Well, it's this. Jesus takes the barnyard imagery of the fox who's trying to get in and kill, kill the chicken. And he says, this chicken's too big for you. You can't do it. When I go, it will be a barnyard fire that takes me. It's not going to be a single animal. It's going to be the cosmic conflagration that has belonged to this planet since the fall of Adam and Eve. N.T. Wright in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, talking about this text, says this, Jerusalem is about to face the equivalent of a devastating farmyard fire. Literally, the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 is going to be burnt to a crisp. The temple destroyed, the walls knocked down, thousands and thousands of its citizens crucified. The city itself leveled and burnt. Jerusalem is about to face the equivalent of a de devastating farmyard fire seen from the point of view of the livestock, and T. Wright says. Jesus has longed to do what mother hens do in such circumstances, to spread its wings, to allow the chicks to come underneath of it, to set itself on top of the chicks. And when the barnyard fire has done its worst and wiped out the barnyard, the mother hen will be burnt to a crisp, but the chicks will still be alive underneath her wings. But the chicks are refusing to come under his wings. See what Jesus is saying? I could take care of this for you. If you let me die for you, if you let me exhaust the Roman wrath, if you let me be the scapegoat for your bad revolutionary impulses, Rome will be appeased and you can live in peace. 
but Jerusalem's determined not to let that happen. They are going to wipe out Jesus for just this reason, to appease Rome. In fact, there's this great, fantastic text in John chapter 11 where Jesus is on trial and the Sanhedrin is trying, this is the, Rome, the Jewish council, is this gathering of uh, Sadducee and Pharisee leaders is gathered together to discuss. Like, so, so what's going on here? What should, this guy sounds like he's trying to start revolt. He's also opposed to us though. You know, we're all, the Pharisees are all for revolt, but as long as it's on their terms. And this guy is not siding with them. The Sadducees don't want revolt at all because revolt means they lose their tenure position in being in charge of the temple. What are we gonna do with them? And so John 11 says this, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus performs many signs if we let him go on like this. Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let him keep on going, the barnyard fire is going to happen. What are we gonna do? One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying, let the guy be the hen. Let him die and Rome will leave us alone. If we execute this man, we can tell Rome, see, revolt, we're against it. We're gonna off the, we're gonna off the revolutionaries. We're gonna crucify the revolutionaries. And then we can go on just you know, the status quo. We have our property, we have our temple. We can keep up our traditions. We're not gonna be, we're not gonna be uh, exiled into slavery again. He, his, this is John's take on it, though. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. See, John's interpreting through the lens of Jesus' own destiny, Jesus' own desire to be the mother hen, to be the one who dies so that they can go off scot-free. Now, um, you guys know enough of history to know it doesn't work. They crucify Jesus, they appease the wrath of Rome by crucifying Jesus, but they still insist on fomenting revolution. In 35 years, in, like I said, in AD 70, Rome's gonna come in and squash a really big revolution and destroy him. So it doesn't work, but Jesus wishes it would work. Jesus wishes he could take that for them. Jesus wishes that they would trust in him and say, that man died for us so that we could be at peace and we could trust in him and give up our dreams of revolution and being Israel our own way and trust him for his but they would not. We all crave this sort of self-sacrifice too because we are all painfully aware that we live in a world that is one huge barnyard fire and that we are powerless. There's no corner of the barnyard that you can go to to escape the conflagration. And what we need is for somebody to cover it. And when we hear stories of somebody covering us in the middle of the barnyard fire, our hearts link to it. I was uh, reading this story, this we said the uh, military history stuff. For just a heads up for those of you who are bored by this thing. Uh, give me 30 seconds and then you can check back in. So in the Battle of Leyte Gulf in the Pacific, uh, it was a big battle between uh, the, the U.S. Navy and Marines, which they know by this time they're going to win the war, and the, and the Japanese Navy, which is like one last all-out ditch effort to try and rescue themselves. And the, and the U.S. admirals have put their, the, 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 the main part of their fleet in one area because they don't think that the Japanese fleet are gonna attack somewhere else, but they're wrong. And what happens is they have this older, slower sort of auxiliary fleet, some, a lot of older, slower ships and a few escort carriers surrounded by a bunch of destroyers, kind of off here you know, for, for, for backup. But the Japanese main fleet is actually headed for that small little weak American fleet. And when they realize that it's too late for the main fleet to come and bail them out, 
The American ships are too slow to escape the Japanese fleet. And so they send their destroyers, which I know that sounds like a big old, you know, a big powerful ship. In World War II, the destroyers are not big powerful ships. They're actually nicknamed tin cans because they're small and they're lightly armored. They're easily sunk. And their main job is to just be a lot of them. They're cheap to make. And so there's just a ton of them out there. And they hunt for submarines and that sort of thing. But there's a group of three or four destroyers that decide to set up this big smoke screen so that the their fleet can get away and escape, slowly escape behind the smoke. But the captain, a guy by the name of Ernest Evans of one of the destroyers, the destroyer Johnston, sees that this is not going to work and that the smoke screen is going to be to no avail. And the Japanese fleet, which is massive, the biggest battleship in the world, the history of the world, the Yamato, is in that fleet, is going to catch up with them and just basically wipe out the American fleet. And so what he does is he turns his little tiny you know, 120-meter destroyer around and heads straight for the Japanese fleet. Salutes everybody, all the other ships as he passes, and tells over the intercom, tells his crew, basically, uh, you know, hail Caesar, we who are about to die greet you. We're going to go die, is what he does. And this is what happens. He goes and, like, right into the middle of the Japanese fleet and gets rid of all of his torpedoes, fires all of his torpedoes, fires all of his shells, does some damage, not a whole lot of damage, but enough that the Japanese fleet has to swerve, and then they, so he's pestering them, they have to attack him, and they sink him, and he loses his life, and most of the sailors on the Johnson lose, their, lose their, their life as well. But the American fleet is saved. And there's something about a story like that. When you see a movie that has a similar sort of theme, uh, whether like a, you know, a cheesy movie like Armageddon, where somebody gives up their life to stop the asteroid from destroying Earth, or the movie uh, uh, Frozen, which my high school seniors, we just talked about Frozen, uh, the past couple of days. The movie Frozen, where one sister uh, gives up her life to save, the, her, save her other sister. There's something bittersweet about that. There's something that our hearts link to that, and we, we don't know whether to be really sad or to be really happy. And then finally, if you, know, you kind of settle on both, it's both incredibly sad and incredibly happy. But our hearts link to it and crave it and long for it because we know therein lies the secret of the universe. The barnyard fire self-sacrifice. And that's what Jesus does for his chicks. He offers them a place to hide. Like I said earlier, all of your life is one long barnyard fire. Man is born under trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward, Job says. And anybody who's been alive and kind of aware of their surroundings for longer than 15 minutes knows that that's what life is. It's one long barnyard fire. And we sort of train ourselves that in the middle, if you can find a little quiet pocket of the fire before the flames get to you, you can kind of enjoy life for a few minutes and be grateful for it. But you know that devastation is right around the corner. It might be political. It might be cultural. It might be economic. It might be physical. It might be relational. But the barnyard fire of your life is there and it is going to happen to you. And your only hope is the self-sacrifice of Jesus the great mother hen. And when I just said that, it sounds really weird to, to call him that. But you, but you know in, in the image what I'm talking about. He is willing and able to cover you with his wings until the barnyard fire is passed. The barnyard fire is going to be there. He does not get rid of the barnyard fire. His destiny is the cross. The suffering of God's people is locked into the data of the universe. It is a part of the program now. It is a part of the narrative God is going to use it to purify his earth. He's going to use it to rescue us eventually. We can't survive it. And I was looking around and seeing your faces. Some of you are like, from what I know of you, you're not really in this spot right now where this is going to hit home right. 
Some of you are in this spot and you desperately need to hear this. The barnyard fire that you're right in the middle of right now, hide yourself under Jesus' wings. He longs to die for you. And in fact, he has. The third thing, the return of God. It doesn't end with the death of the mother hen. It doesn't end with the barnyard fire. It ends with good stuff. Verse 35, behold, your house is for, there's two things here. Behold, your house is forsaken is the first one. Second one is this, I tell you, you will not see me until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the, re, the first one, uh, the return of God is tied up with this first line here. Your house is forsaken. So what's the house? What does he mean your house is forsaken? Well, whose house? Well, if you're, um, well, we actually just, in Jeremiah, the Jeremiah reading, we read the house, which is just code for the temple in, 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 in Jewish lingo. The house is short for the house of God, the temple. Your house is forsaken. The Romans are gonna come in here like the Babylonians before them and destroy this temple, this pretty temple that you've built. And do you know why it's gonna happen? Is it because God is weak? No, it's because he don't live there no more. You have this beautiful house for God to live in, but he's not at home. That house is forsaken. He's abandoned it. It's going to be destroyed and it doesn't bother him at all because it's not his house anymore. He's gone. You think that this temple will save you from the Romans, but you can't stop the barnyard fire because this house is empty. God's not at home. He's not here to stop it. It's just me now. I'm the only one who can do this. But here's the good news. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so what's he talking about? You will not see me until you guys say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, if you know the gospel story, the first answer might be Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, when the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The only problem with this, though, is, this is you don't get this in Luke, but in Matthew, you get this. In, in Matthew, the triumphal entry happens in chapter 21. This story happens in chapter 23. Two chapters after they've already said, at the triumphal entry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's not talking about, the Palm, it's not talking about Palm Sunday. Because Jesus tells this story after Palm Sunday. Instead, Palm Sunday is important. Palm Sunday is just another like prophecy of the final time when everybody will say, look at Jesus and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so what is he talking about? He's talking about this. The best way to get at this is, is this way. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And I'm gonna read to you a chunk from Psalm 118 because this is interesting enough. Psalm 118 is all about God's temple and God's plan that someday his people will be able to come to his temple and worship him with pure heart and in safety and in peace. And Jesus pulls this line out of there because he knows that's what Psalm 118 means to them. Is this, just basically Jesus is saying, the house is empty, but someday I'm coming back to the house. Let me, let me read you from Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. The gates of righteousness are the gates to the temple that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Remember, he's talking about the temple. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The temple will be rebuilt. And the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. Which, by the way, in the Gospel of John, this is one of Jesus' favorite Old Testament prophecies to refer to himself as, the stone that the temples rejected. So Jesus loves Psalm 118 because it's about him. The stone that the builders rejected. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
the day when the temple's rebuilt is what Psalm 118 is talking about. The day when God's people can once again come into his presence and worship him with thanksgiving and singing and dancing and shouting. That will be the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Uh, literally in Hebrew, Hosanna. Hosanna, O Lord, which is, this is what they chant at the um, uh, triumphal entry, right? O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, here's our verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The house is empty. It's going to be destroyed. But there will come a day when Jesus returns to the temple and we bless God from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The sacrifices are going to be reinstituted. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So this wonderful tradition, not just in Psalm 118, although that's what Jesus quotes from, it's this wonderful tradition in, this, in, in the uh, Old Testament prophets and in Psalms of a temple that's destroyed and desolate, but it will someday re be rebuilt. God will come back in and live in his temple and welcome his people from all nations to join him in the one true, final, eschatological, faithful worship of him. And Jesus says, the temple's desolate now, but I'm gonna die in this barnyard fire. And when I do that, I'm going to rise from the dead and the temple will be rebuilt. So what does he mean? Does the temple literally gonna get be, re be rebuilt? No, he means that he actually is himself the temple. He says this in John chapter two. He cleanses the temple. Pharisees come and say, who gives you the authority to cleanse the temple? And he says, tear this building down and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they're like, that don't make no sense. It took Herod 40 years, and it's the, the, the construction project is still going on. There, there's no way that you can build a temple like this in, in three days. But then John goes on to say, after his resurrection, his disciples looked back and were like, oh, he meant himself. He meant that he's the new temple. Everything that the temple was in the Old Testament, the place where God lived, the place where God revealed himself, the one and only place where God forgave sins. Jesus now is that place. When we come to him, we can come in the name of the Lord because he is the gates of righteousness. He is the place where God lives. He's the place where God reveals himself. Jesus is the one and only place in the universe where God forgives sins. He doesn't just die for us in the barnyard fire, but he gives himself to us as the very presence of God, as the new temple, enabling us to connect with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we're doing this morning is we're coming to him. This is our destiny. He planned this for us by his shed blood on the cross it happens only because of his self-sacrifice, only because he covers us with his wings. And it is the return of God. When we come and we meet with him, it's not just us gathering together to sing some songs and to hear some information. God himself promised that when we walked in this building, we can, in all honesty and truthfulness, bless the one who's come in the name of the Lord because he is dwelling here in the midst of us by his word and by his sacrament. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to do what we could not do, to defend ourselves against the great cosmic, cosmic barnyard fire. We thank you for uh, building into your universe self-sacrificial love. Father, help us to lean and trust on the self-sacrificial love of your son Jesus, along with the, the glorious power and lordship of his resurrection for our meaning, for our safety, for our hope. Lord, in your mercy. Not only that, Father, but now that we've been united to him by baptism, now that we believe in him, 
now that we feed on his word, now that we feed on Jesus himself in the Lord's Supper, Father, help us to begin modeling that self-sacrifice with each other. Help us to give our lives up for each other, to serve and love and better the other more than ourselves. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all those who, while we're all going through the barnyard fire, be with those who are painfully aware of its intensity right now, who are right in the middle of it. And Father, convince them that they are covered up. Convince each one of us, whatever the fire is, convince us that we are covered up with the wings of your son, Jesus Christ. And though we cannot escape the heat, though we cannot escape the damage, our lives are spared, our souls are spared because he gave up his life for us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with your whole church across the world. We pray especially that you would be with our sister churches, especially those in this area, our sister LCMS churches. And as always, Father, we pray that you would bless all the gospel-preaching churches in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon and the surrounding area as your word is preached and proclaimed and your Holy Spirit irresistibly moves forth to create afresh and to expand your already existing kingdom. We pray that we could join together in rejoicing over this fact that Glen Carbon is your destiny, Father, that Edwardsville, that Edwardsville is your territory, that you will rule and reign, that we are your colony here, and that you are going to grow it until your son Jesus returns again to finally, completely make all things new. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things because you have covered us with your wings. You have made us your children, your chicks. You have united us to your son Jesus. And because of that, you call us your daughters and sons. And we come in his name to bring our request before you. We pray this always in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us and given your one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Give us your spirit, gracious Father, that we may hear the testament of your Son in true faith and above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, Father, lead us to remember and give thanks for the infinite love Jesus showed us when, by pouring out his precious blood, he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Allow us to receive the bread and wine that is his body and blood as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
understand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, Bible study is now right after this. So you're all here. This is a good opportunity to just go to Bible study. You don't need to like go home or anything like that. Uh, find out where your class is at if you have questions about that. Go in peace. <laughs>